Everyone is a character. All characters are Tatiana. Conclusion, Tatiana is everyone. You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is Stephanie. And in this episode, we are talking about Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address. We mentioned back when we were talking about season three that the episode titles this season were taken from this speech that he gave. And we promised we would do an episode in the future where we talked all about it. Here is that episode. We did not forget. And we are so excited to have a guest joining us. We kind of can't believe that she was available and and agreed to do it. (laughs) But Valois Armstrong, who works for the Dwight Eisenhower Presidential Library. Hi, glad to be here. Did I call it? I probably called it the wrong name. Is there a more official title that I should use? Uh, Well, um, our director likes to use the Dwight D. Eisenhower Presidential Library Museum and Boyhood Home, but that's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. So what is your background exactly? What do you do at the museum? Well, I actually work in the archives, and I'm an archivist. That means I work with historical documents. I do reference. I do preservation actions. I'm in charge of our uh, – we have a database that, that we maintain that tells us where all of our documents are, and those are some of the kinds of things that I do. If you want to know a little bit about me as a fan, which is a distinctly different thing, I've been a, been involved in fandom since uh, the 19, around 1994-95, writing X-Files fanfic and all that. <laughs> nice. And I gradually shifted from there to Highlander, even though Highlander was off the air at that point. And now my main interaction with fandom is going to Worldcon wherever it is every year. I'm an avid vidder, love to make vids, a wide range of fandoms, and also um big Doctor Who fan. And and Orphan Black, so I love the show. That was what made her so magical is that we we actually just sent a blind email to the presidential library saying, I don't know if anybody would be willing to talk to us about Eisenhower's farewell address and we got an email back saying, Well, as somebody who works here and an orphan black fan, like really? Awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because our, our public affairs person didn't quite know what to do with the request. So she passed it on to our deputy director, who's also a huge fan of the show. Ah. As a matter of fact, we're such big fans of the show that when our local cable company dropped BBC America, we both, I mean, he threw Amazon Prime and me through iTunes, subscribed to the series on our own because shame on them for dropping BBC America. And you lost Doctor Who, too, that way. Uh, iTunes is my friend. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I thought we would start because we do have Orphan Black has a very international fan base and we have a very international audience for our podcast. I thought we would start with just some basic information about President Eisenhower, sort of who he was in the context of of U.S. history. It'll probably be a reminder to some of our listeners in in the U.S. as well, I'm sure. (laughs) Well, yeah, since he passed away in 1969, he's been gone for a while. So a lot of people listening to the podcast, their parents might not even been born when he was, you know, passed away. But just a bit about um, Eisenhower. He was born, uh, our museum and, and archives are in Abilene, Kansas, which is the, in smack dab in the middle of Kansas, in the middle of the U.S. 
So he was born to a family that was literally on the other side of the tracks, which is a phrase we use in the U.S. for poor families in the bad part of town. And he grew up, even though his his uh, parents were at the, pretty religious, originally it was kind of a, a an order sort of related to the Mennonites, but not quite. And then they became Jehovah's Witnesses. So they were, uh, he came from a pacifist family, but he got an appointment to West Point. So he went to the United States Military Academy at West Point and graduated in 1915. And his entire adult life up into, up to World War II had been spent in the military as an army officer. And in World War II, where he really rose to prominence in the world and in in the Americans' eyes, he started first by campaigning the Allied forces that uh, took over North Africa and and uh, drove the Germans out there. And then he was appointed to head the Allied troops that were the big planned invasions through Normandy. Everybody's heard of D-Day and the Normandy invasion. Well... He was the the guy who got all the Allied commanders to cooperate and and had this massive invasion and then commanded the the Allied troops in Europe through the end of the war. So that was he rose to national or international prominence then. And after that, he was oh U.S. Army Chief of Staff for a while, and then uh, he was president of Columbia University, which is kind of an odd choice for a while. In 1948, he was approached by both Democrats and Republicans that maybe he might want to, because nobody knew what his political views were because he was devoted his life to the army. Anyway, they wanted him to run uh, for president and he declined. And then in 1950, NATO was just started and they needed a military commander for the troops in Europe because at that time, 1950, uh, Europe was still really recovering from World War II. And the Soviet threat and the growth of communism in Eastern Europe was a really big, big issue on everybody's mind. So Eisenhower became the, the first military commander of NATO. And I think he was pretty satisfied with that, but some folks in the U.S., sort of had a movement to to kind of get him to run for president, and that succeeded. And one of the things that really persuaded him, in 1952, in January, they had a big rally in Madison Square Garden, and it was filmed. And one of the, the people don't know about her much anymore, but a very famous aviator at the time, her name was Jackie Cochran. She flew to Paris, where, where Eisenhower was, with a film of that rally, and that's one of the things that persuaded him to run for, for president. So he was very popular, won by a landslide, and just kind of a very a very popular president. He had a the kind of a guy who liked to to, to run things from behind the scenes, you know, the uh, not like really seeking the public eye so much like a lot of politicians might do. So, and as far as the farewell address is one of his most well-known speeches, and it's a really interesting speech in the in, in parts of it actually contain phrases that kind of echo things in George Washington's farewell address. It's just really an interesting speech. But as far as Eisenhower goes, that's that's who he was. Mostly a military guy until boom, he runs for president. And then he, he was success, he ran for a second term and was elected by a wide margin. 
even though during that, um, he actually managed to balance the budget three times, which and and work well with uh, Congress congressional members of the other party, which is an amazing thing in the U.S. nowadays. You mm-hmm. just never that. So, so just an interesting guy. And he would have been in office during like the conflict in Korea, correct? Right. One of his campaign promises was to end the Korean War. So as soon as he was elected in de- December, right after the the election. He actually made a military inspection in Korea, and then there, the Korean armistice was signed during his first year in office. So, yeah, he said he was going to do it, and he did it. And he also, in the, in the height of the Cold War, when everybody was afraid of nuclear annihilation, that's where you get all those science fiction films with the giant radioactive bugs and stuff. Well, you know, I mean, just it was just a general fear of the time, you know, the Cold War and nuclear war. And he managed... Uh, to steer the U.S. through eight years of, of uh, you know, potential conflict and, and not get us reengaged into any kind of a conflict, which was pretty amazing. That's interesting to me that he comes from a pacifist background but ended up being in the military for most of his life. Well, I think his parents were probably more devout than the boys were. Mm. He was kind of kind of a rowdy kid, so... Though getting into his farewell address, he does seem to stress uh, peace over and and disarmament more over armament and and that sort of thing. Well, and and it's funny because that speech comes at the end of his presidency and his first year in office, Joseph Stalin died and, and, you know, he was the head of the Soviet Union and everyone thought, well, now maybe there's a chance we can all kind of get together and come to consensus some kind of agreement, and he did a, a speech that's generally called the Chance for Peace speech, and there's the, and, and, and this is a phrase in there where he said, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired, signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. And, and, and there's a lot more, too, than that, but it, it's just kind of an interesting thing that he has Two speeches, both bookending his his uh, career at the beginning and at the end, where he talks about the need to balance military power with other things. And, and I think I, I recently talked to somebody who who has studied that farewell address in depth, and he said that that the thing, that balance. If you look read the whole speech, that, that it really seems to be talking about in, in the government and in society, we need to have balance and not let any one thing dominate, which is interesting. So you've given us some context for the farewell address. Do, do you have any further insight for the, for us for context on the speech? Well, it's interesting because it, um, they started right. His speechwriter started on that in, in 1959, uh, which is like about a, well in May of 1959, so about a year and a half before the actual speech took place, and it went through. I think 20 or more revisions, including his brother, Milton, who was a president at Johns Hopkins University, did significant revisions. So it's it's not, I mean, it's something that was very precisely crafted to say exactly what he wanted to say. I don't think people realize how much work goes into some of these major speeches, but this one in particular, they don't, he really had speeches that were been, had been worked on for a year and a half. But yeah, this one, this one had been. I did look at the some of the notes that you sent, and yeah, I was surprised that there were that many versions of the speech. 
Yeah, we actually didn't put all the versions online, just some some of them were like the first one and some of the ones with more significant changes. And it's funny because in the reading copy of the speech, he has little penciled in bits where he changed it even right before he, right before he did it. They used, you know, back in the day they had the, the teleprompters. Well, they still use teleprompters. Anyway, so they could read it off the thing. But if you watch the speech, he seems to be doing it very rarely referring to the teleprompter. I think he pretty much knew what he wanted to say. I like that he starts the speech by thanking television and radio for allowing him to talk to people occasionally, send his message to the public. Hey, he had an Emmy. Really? He he, he won an Emmy Award. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I can't remember the exact date for his, because uh, even though there had been other televised speeches, he was the first president to regularly have his press conferences televised. And he had Robert Montgomery, a well-known actor, the father of... Elizabeth Montgomery from Bewitched. If this rings, I'm significantly older than you guys, I bet. But anyway, so he actually had a, a Hollywood guy, Robert Montgomery, who was an advisor on media relations and that kind of stuff. So he was very, you know, you wouldn't think, you wouldn't think this crusty old general would be media savvy, but he really was. Interesting. So I'm curious about the kind of the current events or sort of the the socio-political context of the farewell address because clearly he's talking very specifically about the rise of the military and its influence that it might exert in society and i'm curious sort of like what is he responding to specifically he makes reference to a conflict now engulfing the world is he talking about the rise of communism there Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, hey, it was all about the Cold War during the Eisenhower administration. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely talking about communism. And um, I think, you know, one thing that a lot of people didn't realize, for the 1960 election, there was a lot made out about a supposed missile gap, that the Russians had tons more missiles than the U.S. did. Well, we, in fact, outpaced them by uh, two or three times as many missiles. But all that information was all classified and not available to the public. So, you know, they couldn't just say, hey, um, excuse me, that's wrong. We are actually doing fine. But you had a lot of politicians trying to make make some some good press, you know, get get uh, people t- behind them saying, well, we'll increase military spending. And, and then you also had, uh, I know that one of his speechwriters, Malcolm Moose, had talked about how he was just really, you know, it was very disgusting to read, like, in the aviation and aerospace magazines, all the ads from the um, aerospace contractors. And and, other, and not just, I'm not just picking on aviation and aerospace, but in general, you know, all these big firms looking for that, that those plump federal dollars for military contracts. I know that uh, his speechwriter in particular had mentioned that being, you know, they were all kind of aware of that sort of thing. But I think with Eisenhower, once again, you know, he was all about avoiding extremes. I mean, his his political philosophy was even often called the middle way. He was always looking for that middle way between hazards on the left and on the right. He would just, you know, that kind of idea of compromise and, and, and working together. I think it was, you know, the kind of thing he he. he honed really well in the military. I mean, particularly if you look during World War II, all those high-level commanding generals, type A personalities, would be a, a, a charitable way of putting it. I mean, a lot of really strong individuals and getting them all to work together 
towards that common goal of victory in Europe, that was quite an accomplishment. So that's a skill that he really had. So essentially, we had this rise of communism, which was spurring the creation and building of this huge amount of, of weapons and a very powerful military. So it seems like in the speech, if I'm understanding, Eisenhower is promoting peace and resolution of conflict through like discussion and negotiation rather than resulting to this really huge amount of weapons that they're building? Well, and, and also just... I mean, we talked about, like, the phrase newer elements in our defense, you know, uh, new bombers, new weapons. I mean, particularly strongly talking about nuclear weapons as one of the, the big things in the arsenal. But, yeah, I more than just, I think that it's really hard for people now to understand um, the fear, not just of communism taking over the world, I don't think the fear of ISIS is anywhere or anything at all similar, not even nearly as strong. I mean, people were really afraid. I mean, people were really afraid of bombs. I mean, I was a little kid. Now, this tells you how old I was, but yeah, I grew up during the Cold War. And I remember sometimes you'd look in the sky and you'd see jets. Because I lived in a small town. You know, we didn't see a lot of planes. But sometimes you'd see a plane flying over and you'd see the contrail. And literally, I remember wondering a couple of times, is that one going to drop a bomb? I mean, that's how it, it, it that kind of fear of nuclear annihilation just, it, it got down to the, the lowest levels of society. Everybody was afraid, sort of. And yet, you know, yeah, it was it was a weird time. But, uh, but, you know, politicians will take advantage of weird times and to, um, you know, get votes and that kind of thing. And I think he would, he just wanted people to just sort of take a step back, take a breath, kind of, you know. It, it was, it was an interesting time. But yeah, the speeches, I think if you, I think there's one paragraph, I forget where it was in the speech, where he uses the word balance like nine times, mm-hmm. or eight times, just trying to balance things out. Sure, we need to be defense, and we need to be strong, but we don't need that to be the, the sole focus. Because if you do that, you erode, you know, civil liberties and that kind of thing. If you have any specific questions, I wish I'd rewatched season three before the podcast, so I would have more specific. But well, but a specifically orphan black thing is when when you guys first told me that because I you know I thought all the episode titles sounded kind of familiar, but I couldn't quite place them. And when you told me it was the farewell address, I thought military and corporation clones, military industrial complex. It all makes sense now. But yeah. Right, because I I was just wondering if we could talk maybe about some of the major themes or issues that he brings up in the speech. You've talked about balance. He has that paragraph where he really stresses balance, public and private, et cetera, et cetera. Military-industrial complex is obviously a big phrase that's been pulled out of this speech. So what are some other maybe major themes or issues that he talks about here? Well, I was kind of curious because I didn't go back and rewatch the episodes. Um, I'm just, I went and I, I highlighted all the phrases that are episode titles. Mm-hmm. So did And we. I just wanted to, <laughs> there's, um, one phrase in particular where he, they're talking about the rise of communism. And two phrases out of that were used as episode titles. One, ruthless in purpose and, and insidious in method. And the other one, transitory sacrifices of crisis. And I'm just wondering, 
could you refresh my memory what happened? And say, I'm really bad with Orphan Black. I don't remember the episode titles. I just remember the episodes and what happens. Because they make all the episode titles so very difficult to remember which one is which. <laughs> exactly, because they're so obscure. I, I did try. I did. I did try and remember the the episode title with the Clone Dance Club in it because I I, I nominated that for a Hugo Award this year and and voted for that. So I was very happy to help be responsible for Orphan Black winning a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Short Performance. But other than that, never mind. <laughs> yeah, the episode titles are always so odd. But those particular, what happened in Ruthless and Purpose and Insidious and Method? What was that episode? Okay, I went and pulled up IMDb because I have trouble remembering which one is which. Um, Oh, no, I don't feel bad. Yeah, yeah, don't feel bad. Okay, Ruthless and Purpose and Insidious and Method is episode 308. And so that's the one, let's see. That's the one where Rachel... She manages to manipulate Sarah saying, oh, I'm going to help you decode the Dr. Moreau book, the Island of Dr. Moreau book. And she ends up faking a big seizure to make her escape from Dyad. Ah, yes. So there's not a direct parallel to to what it is in the speech, but that definitely describes Rachel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. And then the transitory sacrifices of crisis, that's episode two. Two, yeah. And that's where, oh, that's, oh, that's the one that starts off with the caster boys with Patty. Yeah. And it ends with Seth or excuse me, with Rudy shooting Seth because he's showing the symptoms of their disease yeah. that they have. Yeah. And they try to get to Kira. Yeah. There's a lot that happens in that one. Well, the whole season, a lot, a lot happens. It's true. All the time. <laughs> it was a very good season in my opinion, but anyway. So I'm guessing the transitory sacrifices of crisis possibly refers to Seth and maybe some other people in there too. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's funny because it, it kind of sounds like they mined the speech for phrases that fit the episode, but didn't necessarily reflect back to the speech. Mm-hmm. See, if you, yeah. Do you, do you know what they're going to be using for titles for season four? Have they mentioned? No, I don't think any of the episode titles have, have been released yet. It'd be interesting to see what they pick for the um for season four. What what see, and this is another thing I meant to do before this. What did where did they take their uh episode titles for seasons one and two? Season one was uh Origin of Species. Oh, how cool. And season two was um Francis Bacon, right? Yeah, variety of works that Francis Bacon wrote, but it was all stuff from uh, it was all quotes quotations from Francis Bacon. See, this makes me really love the showrunners of Orphan Black so much because they don't dumb things down for the audience. You know, they they take they take interesting and intellectual things for their titles. They have the best show on television, the best at well, except for Doctor Who. I'm sorry. Actually, it is better than Doctor Who, but I'm just a Doctor Who geek. Um, <laughs> they also have the best best working actress on TV, and it just is an amazing show. It's it's fantastic. But yeah, I love that they don't dumb stuff down for people, and they, uh, even the, even down to the episode titles. It's so great. I mentioned to one or two people this week that we were doing this episode, and the reaction is always, "How do you even know that?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I do feel really dumb for not recognizing those phrases and that were in the episode titles as being part of the speech. But they didn't pick like the big, you know, I think had one that said military industrial complex. Of course I would have got that, but yeah. And that's probably why they didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's really great, though. But it's interesting because it this speech really does fit the huge themes of especially season three of Orphan Black, obviously, because they focus a lot on the military. But they managed to get in the idea of corporations and, and research that is fueled by government dollars. He talks about all of that in his farewell address as well. And that had been laid, you know, back with Dyad back in season one, when maybe they weren't focusing on the the military anymore. And because there was a line where he's talking about the about research sort of being too directed by the by the government or he, he also talks about public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. And that reminded me back in season two when we saw Rachel meeting with the Koreas in order to negotiate policy that would be favorable to Dyad. Yeah, yeah, it really does fit a lot, doesn't it? Have has anybody ever talked to the either writers or showrunners or anybody like at San Diego Comic Con or at Dragon Con or somewhere? I mean really I just this is the kind of thing that I, it would be great if somebody had asked them about it at a panel. But since those two cons are ones I don't do, I just wondered if anybody have if you heard anybody had asked them directly about it or how they came to choose this particular thing or Apparently it's Kasima Herder who's their science consultant is the one who names the episodes. Ah. So I don't know. We should Yeah. We should ask her. Yeah, yeah, I'm not likely to my yeah. My my uh con budget is pretty maxed out with the ones I already do, so I'm not liable to add Dragon Con or anything to it. But that would be really interesting for somebody to do that. Or even to have a whole panel on that. That would be great. So do you have I, I just feel like I'm dominating the discussion and you guys might have questions. I'm trying to get at sort of his major his major talking points that he covers in the speech. Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel like maybe we haven't covered those quite. And and so we've mentioned oh, sure. we've mentioned balance. He he stresses this idea of balance. And then sort of what could you maybe go into some detail about his commentary about the military industrial complex and what he means by that exactly? Well, it's interesting because, you know, he talks about how, you know, in they have you have to guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. And um, it's interesting because that particular phrase, people have taken that to mean all kinds of things. And I think if you, but most dramatic is if you reflect back to George Washington's farewell address. And George Washington said, hence, likewise, they will avoid the necessity of those overgrown military establishments, which under any form of government are inauspicious to liberty. So this really reflects precisely back. And as a matter of fact, almost a year before the final speech was given, one of the speechwriting staff said, you know, we've got to use this bit right here from Washington's farewell address. And I think that... But basically, I think that that's totally reflecting that 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 need that yes, we need security, but we can't let it dominate everything in society. That can't be, you know, the the end all and be all of of the the existence of the federal government. But um, and my military industrial complex is he he's talking about the the military plus the industry that builds weapons. Is that? What he's referring right, to, right, right. Particularly if you if you, it becomes imbalanced, so that the the um, industry is driving the the military. Like if you if you get the military contractors driving 
the, the military budget, then that that can be bad. Mm-hmm. You know, that's as bad as as if the military. It's just it's all like I said. It's kind of it's all about balance, which is also interesting when he gets into the part where he talks about the the, the technological revolution mm-hmm. and how research has become so central. And then, and, but then it's interesting that he he's, he talks about how research, what he even calls it historically, the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has been exper- has experienced a revolution in the contact conduct of research. So he was talking about, and I don't know if you you're aware of how uh, research gets funded in, at colleges and universities and so forth. A lot of it comes either from government grants or from industry mm-hmm. and not necessarily from just the scientists going, gee, I wonder if this works because what ha- it's just like, um, you know, if you go to grad school and you think about, you know, well, I want to go to grad school and I want to study X and then you think, well, yeah, but is there, my friends who, who went into the sciences, they found really lucrative, like graduate assistantships and all kinds of money from corporations who were sponsoring research, but which was great for her. I mean, bad for me because there weren't a lot of, you know, history doesn't sponsor research, but in a way that you end up with your, if you have all, if your research is tied to big interests, those big interests drive the focus of the research, whether that's military or industrial. You know what I mean? If it's corporate, if it's federal research, it's a little freer usually, but you know, if, if, if you, for instance, if, it was like this friend of mine that was studying. She was into biology and 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 plant biology, particularly grasses. And a lot of the research in that field was driven by agribusiness. So you tended to focus on, say, forage crops and different things like that, or, or grain crops that are grasses. So which is great, but maybe that's not what she really wanted to research. But see, that's where the money is, and so that's where the research goes. So, but it is interesting because people forget about this whole section of the speech, which talk about how just kind of like that. Oh, there's that, that stereotype of the 19th century kind of a gentleman scholar who does his scientific experiment and all that. Well, you know, that's it, it's costly to do research nowadays. Just the equipment and stuff is just really, really expensive, and you have to have sponsors. So that's why, and they talk about the perspective domination of the nation scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present, yet you always have to have a grant to do your research. So it's interesting because a lot of that stuff he was talking about didn't go away and maybe even got stronger. Yeah, I I thought that was really interesting because he... He's actually very good about telling you, I'm going to warn you about two things. And so the first thing he talks about is the military-industrial complex. And then the second thing he talks about, like you said, is this this research and it being dominated by government and industrial money. And um, and so I was I actually found that section of his speech the most interesting, maybe because I hadn't heard as much about it. Yeah, it's not talked about much. And, and then that, the next section after that where he talks about, you know, keeping in, the, in mind the needs of society's future – you know, it's, it's, don't you can't let everything be driven by by today. You have to keep. Well, I love that's where one of the the phrases came from for a title and the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. It's a great turn of phrase. 
Yeah, um, I was telling Chris that it, it by itself, it kind of doesn't, it sounds good. But when I heard it and read it in context, I got a little chill down my spine yeah. because what he's talking about is democracy. He says, mm-hmm. we, if we want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Yeah, and I think the next section where he talks about a community of dread and fear and hate, uh, dreadful fear and hate, I think if you understand it in the context of the Cold War, you know, the um, the the Christian West versus the cold, atheistic, communistic, you know, Soviet bloc, yeah, it, they really, the next, actually the next section seems to be like, um, let's just get together, let's not have another war. Well, that's, I mean, it doesn't say it quite that plainly, but, you know, because he, but he is talking about disar- disarmament mm-hmm. being an imperative. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, at least nobody's dropped any more nuclear bombs. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting the section where, and we got a couple of episode titles from here as well, where he's mm-hmm. talking about the need for diplomacy and, and talking to each other. And he says, such a confederation must be one of equals. The weakest must come to the conference table with the same confidence as do we, protected as we are by our moral, economic, and military strength. That table, though scarred by many past frustrations, cannot be abandoned for the certain agony of the battlefield. And it makes you wonder if, you know, his work with NATO and, and well, even during the war, there were a lot of smaller allied countries that people don't even think about. All those little European nations that also helped fight. I mean, maybe they couldn't bring as many men or forces, but but it's interesting that he, he ends the speech of his presidency, the last speech of his presidency, with a section, well, I mean, there's the goodbye section, but with this section focused on war and avoiding war, which is, is interesting. It's also typical of Eisenhower. You know, if you look, like I said, that one speech, his chance for for peace speech in 53, you know, kind of bookends this one really nicely. Not the kind of thing you'd expect from a general. Exactly. I think that's partly what makes this so interesting is this career military man lecturing essentially against against war. And because he, he talks about our peaceful methods and goals, he really he says peace a lot in this speech. Well, but I think you gotta, you know, even, even with the speech and, and all this stuff, it's not, it's not quite all as rosy and let's all be friends, because you also during the Eisenhower administration, you had either a larger rise of like covert activities and, uh, trying to use, you know, psychological warfare. Although Eisenhower also tried to do things like, um, uh, cultural exchange programs, uh, having like, well, Van Cliburn, who was a famous pianist, he he did a tour to the Eastern Bloc, you know, as a, as a promoting the West. And also, there was a musical called Porgy and Bess, and the U.S. Uh, information Agency promoted a tour of Porgy and Bess in Europe, kind of to promote the West. So it wasn't all you know, like bad. And this is all what you might consider propaganda or psychological warfare, but it, one aspect of that was trying to present the good aspects of Western society to the West. And, and Eisenhower also promoted a program called People to People, which continues to this day, but basically it's an exchange where, because uh, he really thought that if individuals got to know individuals, like, it's easy to hate an abstract thought, uh, an abstract idea like, you know, the communist, evil communist. 
But say you as an individual go and you meet people from another country and that, and they come over here and they meet people here, kind of like sister city programs, which also started, were fostered under this people to people program. But that, so people that, you know, that the American citizens themselves could become ambassadors for the, for the West. And that kind of an idea was sponsored under, um, Eisenhower. It's like, it's a, that people to people thing continues now, but it's a private organization. It was started under Eisenhower as, as a kind of a, a goodwill gesture and, and kind of that balance thing once again. But I think, um, I don't know how, I, I, I know that most of my friends who live in, in Europe or, or in England, they, they tend to travel a lot more, but there seems like a lot of Americans. You know, I've met people that they maybe grew up in, in one particular town or city and they never traveled far from that and they, they, they just didn't really get that benefit that you get from when you travel and you meet new people and, and you realize that, you know, humanity is pretty much the same, the same bad points and the same good points wherever you go. Even though the cultures can be different and everything, but people, you know, are people. Unless, of course, you're a clone. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so it's yeah, it's interesting. So any more questions? I keep talking and talking and talking. <laughs> that's that's why we wanted you to be here. So it's fine. It's interesting though cuz uh talking about how, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think that somebody who'd been in the military all his life would sort of stress the importance of peace and all that sort of thing, but I I distinctly remember one of my college classes where they were talking about how actually the the guys who had been in the military tend to be more in favor of diplomacy over military action. Yeah, I think it's a lot easier for somebody who's never been in the military to to say, yeah, yeah, let's just go bomb them. I mean, they've never, especially during the Cold War, I think, I don't know, it's interesting. I, I, I was always surprised how um, militant some people in the Cold War seemed to be when we had just gotten over World War II in Korea, did we really need another one? Apparently Eisenhower felt the same way, but yeah. Talking a little more about how Orphan Black is reflecting the themes that we see in this speech, I wanted to point out a couple of places where we also get episode titles. and Because one of the titles is The Weight of This Combination, and I believe in this piece of the speech he's talking about the military-industrial complex. So the yep. combination so would be the, the paragraph the, right after that. Yep. So yeah, so that'd be the combination of the military and the industry kind of fueling each other. And what then happened in that episode particularly. I mean, if he, if it happened, it's funny because in the speech it's talking about military-industrial working together. So it almost sounds like I mean, ideally, if it was going to match up perfectly to the speech, that would be an episode where. You know, that Lita and Castor clones work together, but. It was actually the first episode of the season. Ah. See, I really need to go back and rewatch this. I will before the next season starts, that's for sure, but I haven't, uh, haven't yet. And then another episode title was uh, Formalized, Complex, and Costly, and that is in regards to the, the research where we talked about there's a big section about research and the speech. Yeah, yeah. And I was also thinking in regards to to research because this is all about our you know not letting the military gain too much power, n- not losing sight of our our peaceful goals, as he says. And we see, and he's also talking about research, and we see this horrible research that is being conducted by Dr. Cody on these women who she's allowing her her clones to infect, 
with the idea that they could possibly be weaponized. Yeah, she's not a very nice person. She's really not. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm trying to, did we get all the other episode titles? I think we did. Um, Well, scarred by many past frustrations Mm -hmm. and certain certain agony of the battlefield. Did Mm -hmm. we talk about that? Well, that's... In the same context of the history yet to be written and and community of dreadful fear and hate. Right, where he's talking about promoting a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect instead. Yep. So were there any other things you wanted to mention in regards to how you felt like Orphan Black's themes in Season 3 really fit this speech? Was there any other pieces you wanted to mention? No, I just thought in general... I was kind of amazed that um, they chose it, but when it comes right down to it, it's really, really fitting. I, I don't think I was. They did choose different phrases, uh, unexpected phrases, but I think that it's amazing that they. I'm kind of. I mean, even though I had nothing to do with the speech, I'm kind of proud that Eisenhower's speech was selected, and kind of excited to find out what they do for next season. Because I'm definitely, man, when, as soon as they announce those episode titles, I'm going to start Googling and figuring <laughs> out, figure out where they came from. It's so easy to Google quotes and find out where they come from. So I, I do have one last question, and, and maybe you've already talked about it already, but what's kind of the legacy of this speech? I feel like it's a fairly, I don't know, is it well known? Is it, it but I feel like I've heard of it before, but maybe just oh, hadn't yeah. heard the text. Yeah, it, as a matter of fact, it is really well known. And what's funny is a lot of people, there's a really interesting book by a man named James Ledbetter who um, focuses on this speech. And he talks, and one thing he talks about is how different people pull, especially the military com- industrial complex phrase, pull it in different directions to mean different things. Uh, and it, it kind of lives on today. And it's actually, you hear it sort of detached totally from the speech, people talking about the military industrial complex and not, and, and people not even knowing where that phrase came from. So it, it definitely does kind of live on, but not, but not many people who hear different phrases from it take the time to go back and read the whole speech in context or even figure out who Eisenhower is. But I, I think it's, he wasn't always known as a really, uh, great public speaker, even though he had some very well-written speeches. But I think in this particular one, if you ever watch a video of it, he does seem to be very determined. And, uh, you know, I think he does a really good job with it. It it is interesting to watch it, too. It's a pretty long speech, and he seems to have committed it to memory, um, which, you know, I find really great. I mean, I'm put a camera in front of me, and I sort of glam up. I do really bad. But Eisenhower did, did really did much better. Yeah, and you can go yeah. listen to the speech. I think you can also find it on on YouTube. I think you can find a a video version of him giving the speech. Right. Yeah, and, the reason and, we don't have the video is I think our video copy is uh, from CBS, so we don't really have uh, the copyright to right. the video that we have here. That's why we have the audio recording. But I do really recommend going and listen to it. Like you said, he's not the best public speaker he's a little bit monotone but he has a pleasant voice and yeah. good diction i i found, I, I found <laughs> and it's well the things that are important to stephanie yeah, it was well written i think it's it's interesting to to listen to and, and especially to reflect on in the in the context of this past season of orphan black i think it was a really good choice for 
you know, text to pull the episode titles from. Mm-hmm. And I'm very excited to find out what they use next next year. Or, well, yeah, it is January, isn't it, before we get new episodes? April. April. Oh, my God. How can I wait? Oh, oh well. I guess I will. I like to call it hiatus madness. <laughs> I can fill my time with Agent Carter and Doctor Who and all kinds of other fun things, but I really am excited for Orphan Black. <laughs> Well, uh, there is a, a collection of various documents that you can go look at that is available on the library's website. Library. We will put a link to that over in our show notes at tatianaseveryone.com slash 88. And there's some really interesting stuff in there. I was poking around at the different PDFs that you have on the website, and there's like notes that he was making about speeches he would give. And it was surprising how, like Chris said, like how far, how many versions of the speech that he had crafted. Well, and what's really funny is um, we didn't have all of those versions here until I think it was like 2010, the son of Malcolm Moose, the head speechwriter, he and his sister were clearing out their boathouse in Minnesota, and they found all these boxes of stuff, and it was his father's office files from when he was a speechwriter, and so we found many of the uh, many of the documents you find that are on our webpage were from that boathouse in Minnesota, and uh, including some of the speech drafts. It was that. Uh, Great. And it, so it's funny because, you know, Eisenhower's been gone for quite a while and we still find new stuff. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this farewell address. We really appreciate your, your expertise in the subject. Oh, you're welcome. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Is there anything that you had online that you want us to, uh, to link to or anything? Anything you want to promote? Um, no, I think, uh, I think that's it. I think, it, oh, if anybody wants to, I think if you Google Washington's farewell address, that would be worthwhile as well. I mean, if somebody really wants to dig into this and they want to see those phrases from George Washington's farewell address, that would be good too. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's been fun. Thanks. So there's some exploration of Eisenhower's farewell address. There is information that you can go find, like I said, on the library website where you can go look at some historical documents that are related to this. We can put a link to that over in our show notes at tatianaiseveryone.com slash 88. You can also leave us a comment there about your thoughts about this episode. You can contact us by email as well. Feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com. You can also call our listener voicemail line at 972 514-7223. We are on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we're also on Facebook. And you can also find all of the podcasts we do, including ones about Lost Girl and Killjoys, and there's the first season of Dark Matter and some discussion of Bomb Girls over at AskGenreTV.com. Yes, because Tatiana's Everyone is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. I like emphasizing family at the end, Chris. It makes me feel warm oh, and fuzzy. Okay. okay. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> and in this episode, all of the drafts of Eisenhower's speech were played by Tatiana Maslany. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>